You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. In 1967, Oliver Stone was a combat infantryman in Vietnam. He was wounded twice and received a medal for gallantry in action. Ten years later, he was a Hollywood screenwriter and the winner of an Oscar. But even after many successes, Stone still had another story to tell. A movie that grew out of his own experience. Stone has come a long way from Vietnam, but he has not left it behind. The first real casualty of war is innocence. The first real movie about the war in Vietnam is Platoon. everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Rents. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to discuss in a backwards kind of way the movie Platoon. And by that I mean I want to take a look at how the script developed. And just like it has done many times before, this all started with just reading the novel, the movie adaptation, the tie-in adaptation of Platoon. Which is one of the things I do. I go and grab these books based on movies that I've watched in the past. And I was able to get a whole bunch of stuff about the movie that I didn't know at the time. Or little scenes or little tidbits here or there. But then I wanted to research it a little further. So what I did was I searched for the script. So by looking at the script and the different revisions of the script, it gave me a broader view of exactly how this whole thing was put together. So we're going to go through the script, the movie, and the novel to see the development of this fantastic film that is a landmark in you know the, the genre of war films, if you will. So let's begin with Oliver Stone's Platoon. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Daniel Digger! Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan! <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. I'd like to discuss the movie Platoon today, specifically the script, but in all reality, the way that I ended up on this subject was because I was reading the movie tie-in adaptation, which is something I've been doing for a while now, buying these books based on films that I've seen in the past, and sometimes the books, like for example, when we covered previously on The Martian, the book existed before the film, 
This time, the film exists before the book. It is a true tie-in adaptation. This is something they used to do way more often, I think, than now. It was a way of, I guess, merchandising something having to do with a movie when there was no real merchandising. Uh, Usually for your bare bones kind of movie, you would have, you know, unless it was like a Star Wars type of movie where the merchandising came in an avalanche. But you're, you're very kind of like not that kind of movie merchandising usually was very limited to, well, maybe the poster uh, that you see in the movie theater, which wasn't always easy to find. In the 80s, I think what you had to do was go to specialized movie poster places. And those were not that simple. I mean, I remember in New York, you know, there were a couple of places that I would go to where, oh my God, you walk in and there's like this treasure trove of posters and it was like oh my god you just couldn't believe it there was a place i think i mentioned before called i think it was jerry orwell's poster something and you walked into this brown there was this brownstone building and i think what you would do is you would walk into like the basement part of the building you would kind of walk down into it and that's where the business was it was a tiny little storefront area And I guess somewhere in the back, they had their entire supply of posters. But you would just walk into this little area and start asking for what you wanted to see. And they would bring it out to you. I don't know if it exists anymore. But anyway, I get sidetracked as usual. So for a bare bones movie, you got your poster. And ironically enough, on the poster itself, it would say, buy the soundtrack. Buy, you know, whatever company Uh, was selling the soundtrack, or read the book. And that usually was it. And for a movie like Platoon, which is not a kid's film, obviously, it's a very heavy, dramatic film, something that probably I imagine the director doesn't even care at that point, because when you're making an adult film, and by adult film, I'm not talking about (laughs) an adult film, I'm talking about a film for adults, (laughs) a drama, let's put it that way. Merchandising is probably the last thing on your mind. You know, if you're doing a space adventure, horror, you know, something like that, maybe it could kind of, you know, play a role in, 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 in your decision making or in your in your plan. But for this kind of film, no, that's it. So with a movie like Platoon, you are very limited in what where you can go, you know, once you're done watching this film. So recently, because this is something I've been doing, I don't know, within the last... I don't know, five years, let's say. I used to do this all the time. When I was in my early teens, I would buy the movie adaptation of just about every sci-fi horror fantasy film I would watch. And I used to have a pretty nice big collection of them. I believe I still have most of them. But somewhere, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, I started dipping into that again. And getting more and getting more and more and more. And some current films and some older films, you know, that I've never read before. And that gave me a nice little mix of original novels like Jaws or The Martian or these tie-ins where the author of the novel, the book, is able to add in a little extra. And that is one of the things you really look for. And that's one of the things that really makes a movie tie-in adaptation good is when they're giving you a little extra. Now, when the little extra comes from the script 
in terms of it being an earlier version of the script or a deleted scene of the final draft of the script, you know, anything like that is really good because you get a feel of what the writer of the film, which sometimes is the director, sometimes it's a writer, sometimes it's a completely separate person, of what they meant or what they were thinking about or a direction that they were considering. But sometimes the additional information comes from the writer that's been selected to put together the Italian adaptation. Now, a perfect example is somebody like Alan Dean Foster, a very successful writer who's done tons of movie tie-in adaptations. You know, he's done his own books too, but I have so many movie tie-in adaptations that have his name on it. It was kind of like his thing for a while. He was just a very good writer when it came to taking a script and turning it into a book. Kind of like reverse engineering, <laughs> if you think about it. But with Platoon, the movie was directed and written by Oliver Stone. The book was written by Dale Dye. Now, Dale Dye is a very important name in Platoon because he was also the military advisor. His job, aside from having a nice little cameo in the film, uh, he plays Captain Harris, a prominent, somewhat important character in this movie. Just like Oliver Stone, he has an even smaller... Stone plays Alpha Company Major, a uh, very brief title, not even a real name, but he has what you call a traditional cameo, like you blink and you miss it kind of cameo. Dale Dye has a bigger role, but still a very short role. But anyway, what Dale Dye was primarily hired for to do in this film, and it was one of the first ones he was able to do, I think, he has then parlayed this into a new career, you know, through the 80s and 90s, and I don't even know if he's still doing it, but I think he was all the way to the yeah, I think he might have even done uh, Saving Private Ryan. Anyway, what his specialty is to train actors on kind of like boot camp training. He kind of teaches actors how to act like soldiers. Then he And in this particular film, by reading and listening to interviews, you, you find out that he put all the lead actors through a two-week training course in the Philippines, which is where they shot the majority of the film. And had them go through basic training with him being the, the you know, the captain to the point where the, the way that it was explained is that, you know, by the time they're ready to shoot the film, they should look and feel and act as tired as a soldier usually would be. And you see that in the film. There's an authenticity to this film that is just something you had not really seen before. There were other films before this. There were many films after this. But this is a film that, which I will discuss later why, somehow hit the mark. It kind of dialed it in where it had to be to be a critical success, uh, not only with critics, but with the audience. I mean, I saw this film and I was like blown away by like, oh my God, wow, that is just amazing. The performances, the story, the authenticity, the reality, it all worked. And when you read the novel, the novel is pretty much that. I guess at some point, I don't know if Oliver Stone had anything to do with it, but Dale Dye ended up writing the novel version, the movie tie-in adaptation of the script that he worked on. I was not able to find any interviews directly talking about the writing process or how he got the job, 
Not sure how and why. I know that he writes books also, aside from doing, you know, his hands-on training of, of actors. He is a writer, and, and this is the only time, I think, where he's done a tie-in adaptation. Uh, so this was, again, this was kind of like a springboard to his later career, if you will, that kind of started, you know, with Platoon. So one of the things I noticed about the book is that it pretty much follows everything exactly as the movie goes. There are some minor little extra conversations here or there and some minor little facts here or there, but it is not the type of novel that it's like, blows you away because, oh my God, there's just so much more. No, there is not so much more in this. But it does give you a little bit of a background to some of the characters, some of the most important characters that you never really knew about. So then my question became, well, where did this come from? Since I cannot find any interviews that directly tell you where all this extra information came from, where did it come from? There were some blurbs I was able to find out there, not directly from from Dale Dye, but from People talking about the book, saying that, but I mean, I'm talking about very brief blurbs. Now, I'm not talking about not even a paragraph. I'm talking about like a sentence or two saying that, you know, very good book. Some of the additional information is based on the earlier drafts of the script. So you're like, oh, the earlier drafts of the script. So the question then became at that point is that some of this extra information, did it come from the earlier drafts of the script or did he just make it up? Because sometimes... Writers are allowed to just make up some stuff. I, I remember there's plenty of examples in Star Wars books, movie tie-in adaptations of Star Wars books, where the writer is allowed to be a little creative, if you will. And you figure most people want that. You don't want to just regurgitate the script. So one way of doing it, like I said before, is to use deleted scenes, that sort of thing. But another way of doing it, if you want to be extra generous with the writer, and if you, I guess if you trust the writer... You let them come up with a little something extra. Let them be creative, you know, but obviously they have to check. They have to make sure they don't go overboard with their creativity. So what this led me to was the script. I was thinking, oh, well, maybe if I find a copy of the script, there might be something about it. But however, the script is probably going to be the final script. So there's got to be earlier versions of the script. And then how do you find... A script that shows you what was deleted and what was added and what was, you know, omitted and this and that and the other. That's that's a little that's intensive work. I mean, when I when I think of that, I think about the like the making of Star Wars books, the 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 Rinsler books, the ones that show you script revisions, you know, month by month and how okay, this whole section about this gone. Now this has been replaced with this. Oh, that thing we talked about before, now it's back, but now it's a different character, you know super detail examples of how the script kept changing. With Platoon, I couldn't find that. But then I thought, oh, well, hold on a second. I used to have, which I still do, when I had a working laser player, I used to have the laser disc, you know, super duper special edition of Platoon. And I remember that that was a, a very special packaging and the way that they put together this, this disc, this two disc set was one of the you know, highlights of, of laser disc production. So I was able to dig it out of one of my boxes and thank God it's in good shape. And it is a fantastic packaging. It's probably one of the best packagings 
presentations, if you will, of a Laserdisc ever. And we'll talk about Laserdisc one day, but let me just say this. The Laserdisc industry obviously folded just like the VHS industry or whatever, but with Laserdisc, it was the first time that they were able to put together special editions of films, of which many times the directors themselves or the producers of the film would be involved in the making of it. Because this was almost like a direct connection between your director or the maker of the movie or a high-up participant of that movie and the fans of the movie. It was a very almost personal, manufactured, very niche, very targeted, you know, at the film snob almost you know the people that are really 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 into film granted nowadays that kind of transition to dvd and for a while dvds tried doing that and then it transitioned to blu-rays and 4ks and streaming and this and download and that and forget it it's over that was a very special period in time where there was a desire for that sort of thing but it went away this is a disc package that is in the shape of a scrapbook. It has the texture of a scrapbook of kind of like uh, some kind of material, cloth material that you would find on a scrapbook. And inside is basically a war memory scrapbook. It's full of pictures that Oliver Stone took himself when he was in Vietnam as a soldier in the 60s. And it's full of pictures of like behind the scenes of the filming of the movie. There's a lot of pages like that. Then you got pages of the script, which is like perfect. This is exactly what I was looking for. But the best part about the script is that it gives you earlier drafts and the final version at the same time. So certain chapters or certain paragraphs of the script will be highlighted, you know, bold or indented or something to signify that these chapters or these chunks of script never made it to the final cut. The final cut is all in bold, let's say. But the rest of the stuff that you get to see, it's like, oh, wow, look at this, look at that. And that's where you start to see the changes of how the script got modified little by little in order to get to your final product. And that's how I was also able to compare the book and the script to see where Dale Dye was able to take things that were not used and put them in the book. So that worked really well. So basically, the sources that I used were the script that came from that Laserdisc scrapbook format that I just talked about, which include these earlier versions of passages in the script that were completely removed or altered. Then you have the novel, which I'm sure there were, there might have been some tidbits here or there, but I don't think it was anything too noticeable. Anything having to do with the authenticity of the military terms and the manner in which he explains them, that's all Del Dai. He's the expert in that. He has the language. He has the military lingo language that gets peppered into the film that be, makes it, you know, be a little more authentic than your typical film. And then, of course, you have the movie. The movie is your final product. It's where everything kind of references to. So you, when you're trying to identify where these things came from, you're like, okay, that's the, exactly the way they shot it. That's exactly the way they wrote it, you know, for example. One of the main differences that I've noticed between the, the book and the movie is that the narration is completely removed from the book. If you guys remember, the movie has these bookends. And, and even there's a couple of sections in the middle. You can call them chapter stops, if you will, where... Charlie Sheen's character, Chris Taylor, 
is talking to his grandmother in the form of a letter, for example. Or sometimes he's talking to himself. He's thinking to himself. But there are these sections where he's – and that's where you get a lot of the exposition of the background of – his family life that he's not too crazy about and why he's there and all these things he's experiencing, that is completely out. That is put in the book in the form of just the character, you know, talking or thinking, but not in such a manner where you are kind of breaking from the story. You are actually narrating the story. That is not how it's presented in the book. There are certain incidents and it's it's really unusual. It's really interesting uh, what and how it is decided what should stay and what should go. One of the most pivotal scenes that triggers like the, the big dramatic turns in the film has to do with that village that they go to inspect. And it turns it and it almost turns into a massacre. They do kill a couple of individuals there. And there is a sequence where the character Bunny, who's played by Dylan, he's kind of losing it. I mean, Taylor is losing it, but he kind of then pulls back. And and then there's the character Bunny who comes out and starts kind of losing his mind and kills the the guy that's hiding, you know, under the ground. He's got one leg and he kills him. And that's the way that the the movie depicts that sequence. He kills him. In the book and in the script, he also kills the mother of that character right there and then. And it's kind of implied and agreed that nobody's going to say a word about what just happened. So it's interesting that for the movie, they try to kind of, you could, you could say they tone down the violence there. Have one killing instead of two killings. In the script, when Barnes is trying to get the um, the leader of the village to tell him something about what's going on, he pulls a, a girl and puts a gun to her head. And in the movie, it's a very young girl. In the script, it's a 19-year-old girl, which is kind of weird because here, it's almost like they did the opposite. It was originally an older girl. In the movie, it's a six-year-old girl, then, then which becomes even more horrific that he's threatening this younger girl to get the father to talk, which is kind of, again, it's, it's unusual that you would push it harder for that particular sequence. There's also a very shocking scene where Taylor stops a group of soldiers from raping a girl. Now, in the script, the girl is 12. In the book, they'll die... Hints that she's almost 14. In the movie, you don't know how old she is. She seems to be very young. But in the script and pretty much the book, it's pretty clear that this is a horrific thing that he was able to stop halfway through, but they really did a job on her in terms of this is something that should have been to talk about court martials and, and all that sort of thing. This is, and for this character, the way that it's explained is that he couldn't do anything. The character of Chris, he couldn't do anything about the murder that took place in the hut with the woman and their son. But here it's a way of showing to the audience that this is him doing something about this at least. He, he's like, he can't just turn away and walk and kind of mind his own business. He has to do something and he does something. And it also helps to pair him up with the character of Elias, which is the William Defoe character, the good leader as opposed to the bad leader who is Barnes. Because in the movie, 
they make it very clear that Elias sees him stopping this and getting the girl away from there. So it kind of makes the connection that he did something good and somebody knows he did something good. Not just the, you know, the disgusting rapists <laughs> that are there that are angry at him for making them stop, but that his other platoon sergeant or whatever his title is, is also aware of what's going on and that he was able to stop it and put a stop to it. But again, that's something that only made it in the movie. It's, it's really interesting. The two best additional bits of information that we get from the script and the book, which again, starts with the script, is the background on Barnes and Elias. In the script, you learn that Barnes, who is the really mean, psychotic, <laughs> or let's put it this way, mostly most psychotic of the group, who is the bad guy of the film, Tom Berenger plays him. He's, half his face is all scarred up for it. Really amazing makeup job they did on him. They talk about how he was shot like seven times in the past, and he keeps re-upping and and re you know re re-upping his uh, his military uh, service, uh, as opposed to most people who do their year and they want to just go home. He keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. He's coming back. But in one of these last stints that where he was wounded so much. He was sent to Japan to recover. And while there, he met a woman, a Japanese woman who he married. And the woman brought him home and he was going to start living and, and recuperating at her home where her parents lived. And in the script and book, they tell you about how surprised he was that her parents were so willing to accept him, not only because of the fact that he's a foreigner, but because of his face is so disfigured, you know, half his face. And then he kind of understood why, because they also have living with them, her uncle and aunt, who were survivors of Hiroshima. So you kind of understand that this is a family that's used to this sort of thing, this, this tragic disfigurement injuries, you know, for people. And for whatever reason, it's not really explained, is that he leaves her and because he wants to go back to the war. And that more or less, I think, signifies that's the end of his marriage. But it gives you that little background of somebody who had the choice, had the opportunity to go back, to get out of this. But he likes it. He actually likes that. And part of it, I think it's also, they, they hint at the fact that because of his disfigurement, he doesn't want to go back. Because if he goes back to the States, he thinks, I think he thinks, that people are not going to accept him anywhere. So this is a perfect place for him. He gets to do what he wants. He can look as disfigured as he is. And he fits in this world of all-out war. Uh, so that gives you that section of that character. When you're building that character... It's also understood that he is an excellent, how shall we say this, tactician, sergeant. In terms of getting the job done, let's put it that way. It's his tactics and his technique and his disregard for humanity, whether it's the enemy or your own people, that he is completely, completely, you know, out of his mind on. But his men, to him, are everything in terms of he does not want them to get hurt. So he's going to do everything, no matter how insane, to bring them back alive, basically. If that means even killing his own men, which is how it's, you know, it's the, the contradiction of this, of the, the, the extent that he goes to. Uh, because 
he sees them as his personal property. It's his war. It's his men. That's how he has embraced this whole thing. Uh, so that's your that's your additional background into Barnes. If you take a, a slightly deeper dive into the psychology of Barnes, here's where this character is coming from. And that's something that we're, they're not able to explain too much in the film. You get bits and pieces of it, but when you have a book or, or a script, you start to get that extra about, amount of information. With Elias... It's really interesting because originally he was written as a as a Native American. And you can kind of see that a little bit in the way that William Defoe takes the character. The way he acts, the way he feels kind of like free in the jungle. He's almost like an animal, like a like a horse, like something that's galloping through the field. And he's and you can sometimes see him, he's almost like tracking other people. He's looking at the signs and he's looking at the leaves. So you get a little flavor of that. But obviously he's not, doesn't look like a Native American actor. And from what I understand, uh, Stone was looking for a Native American. For whatever reason, he wasn't able to find the proper actor to be that lead role. But with Willem Dafoe, again, a different kind of actor. You could kind of say, not in the beginning of his career, but in the beginning of him making big films. And I think before this film, he had made... To live and die in L.A. And he usually played a heavy. Streets of Fire. He usually played the heavy. Here he wanted him to kind of switch it around and let him play the good guy. He is the good guy in this film. But again, you know, he's a very distinct actor. He's He's got certain facial features. He's very bony, high cheekbones. You know, his face is like everything. He's, he's so descriptive in, in his gestures and the way that he talks and the way that he smiles and when he's angry. And, you know, it's all in the face with Defoe. You could kind of say he's, he's able to do a lot of physical acting just by how he contorts his face, which is weird because there are some actors that it's almost like the less they contort their face, they do their... Take an actor like uh, Ryan, uh, Ryan Gosling, who is somebody who is so much of a minimalist in his physical acting. And I've heard a lot of people talk about this. When you look at his face, you project what you want into his face. He's very like deadpan and there's nothing notable about his face, but you can kind of tell everything that's happening, whether it's extreme sadness, extreme anger, extreme whatever, it's all there and he barely moves a muscle in his face. It's a completely different acting style or technique or whatever you want to call it. But this is not Defoe. Defoe just throws it all there. And it's very clear when you see him how he acts. But anyway, just like with Barnes, you get the background of his of this particular character in the script. And from what I understand is that they say he was an oil worker in Oklahoma. Then he moves to L.A. and marries an actress and kind of gets caught up in in that Hollywood kind of lifestyle. So it is sort of hinted a little bit that he's not necessarily a hippie, but he's kind of like a, a very loose and easygoing, very progressive kind of individual, somewhere between a hippie and a surfer and just a guy who's who, who kind of is very loose and very liberal, if you will. And the script also tells us that Something happened with the amount of drugs that his wife was taking that resulted in her getting busted and her turning him in in order to save herself. 
and that he was given the option of either go to jail or go to Vietnam. And he picked Vietnam, and that's how he ended up in the situation that he's in now. So that's the background behind Elias. As I mentioned before, there were a lot of up-and-comers in this film. At the time, they weren't superstars, but they were on their way. Obviously, Charlie Sheen exploded after that. But there was another actor in the mix there who got even bigger, I would say, than Charlie Sheen way, way, way later, and that is Johnny Depp. He has a role in the film as Lerner. He's a soldier. He's one of the soldiers there. I'm not entirely sure he makes it all the way <laughs> to the end. I know he gets at least wounded. I don't know if he gets killed or not. I'm not I don't remember at this point. But there's an interesting tidbit to this character. And this is, this is a scene that confused me when I first watched the film and I didn't understand it. And then when I read the book, it brought it a little clearer. And then when I read the script, it made it even more clearer. And it's kind of like, wow, I never even thought of this. There's a quick scene in the movie where you see the camp where they're assembling, you know, going through their day-to-day chores, you know, not, you know, not being out in the jungle at this point. And you get these quick shots of people working and hanging out and doing nothing and, and digging ditches and this and that. And you see far away, you see a soldier that seems to have his pants halfway down and he seems to be doing something <laughs> with his crotch. Or in the crotch area, let's say. But you see it from behind. So I remember I was never like, is he like urinating or is he, what exactly is happening there? Because there's another soldier next to him kind of chatting with him. And I don't remember exactly if we get the reverse shot angle or not, but it just seems strange. And then you move on to the next shot and then that's the end of that. I don't remember exactly if if you do see the reverse angle. You definitely don't see a full frontal shot. But I do understand now by reading the book and from seeing some photos that it is Elias. And according to Dale Dye, what he's doing is he's he's treating himself for rot crotch, which is kind of like a fungus, like a uh, like a jock itch kind of thing that I guess would happen in the jungle, you know, from the heat and the uh, humidity. And he's kind of treating, you know, I guess he's applying talcum powder or medicine or something. And what's interesting is that, again, that reverse angle has the character of Lerner, which is Johnny Depp, kind of chatting with him while that's happening, which seemed kind of weird. I mean, I know that, yeah, okay, fine. You know, there is no privacy and obviously there's no women around. And people use the bathroom however they use the bathroom. There's no separations. Everything is out in the open for everyone to see. But it, that, I remember that's something that was like, whoa, that's really strange. In the script, and not necessarily in the book, and definitely not in the movie, it's described as if while Elias is treating himself for fungus, crotch rot, they called it, Lerner is admiring him while he's there. So to me, that implies that there might have been at some point a little more of a sexual connotation to that scene, which they definitely did not follow up with the book, and they definitely didn't follow up with in the movie. But it's interesting that Stone, at the time, was willing to hint of something. And But not follow through with it, because in the rest of the script, there is just no word about it whatsoever. But if you start to think about the background 
of some of the characters and the way that they were written, you would kind of see the possibility that maybe, oh, okay, well, maybe there was something there, but it never progressed beyond that. Interesting. Again, these little tidbits, these are the little things you find on a script that all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, I never even thought of that. The character of Big Harold, which is played by Forrest Whitaker, again, another amazing actor that got even bigger and, and more uh, famous and and bigger and better roles. You know, this is one of those starting roles. It is mentioned in the script, which was later deleted. There was a, there was a conversation about him being 15 days short, you know, of the end of his tour. And there is that sequence where he's wounded, really seriously wounded. I believe he kind of makes it out. He doesn't necessarily die, but it set up a sequence where you would have that ironic, tragic, you know, I'm almost out of here and then I get hurt, really seriously hurt scenario, which is something that later on with Chris's other friend, I forget his name. I think it was King. Was it King? I don't know. Anyway, where they're about to do that final battle and he's all, you know, everybody's afraid, everybody's nervous. And all of a sudden he gets word that he's going home because he's about, I don't know, but he's about a week or 15 days or whatever short of finishing up. So... He leaves on the helicopter, and you're, like, watching every step of the way, thinking, oh, my God, please do not blow up that helicopter. Please do not have, like, a an RPG hit the helicopter and die. And it's like, oh, my God, this guy was so short. So they didn't do that. They didn't want to do I, – I guess you could call it the, the traditional or, or the stereotypical or the cliche guy that's done his duty and he's ready to go. And they kill him off in the last second just to kind of put another blade in your stomach to make you feel awful. But no, they didn't. And that would have been what would have happened with Harold's character if they would have given us the background he was that he was this short. It would have been one of those, oh my God, he was so short and now they now he's completely hurt, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'm glad they didn't do that. He does get hurt, obviously, in the movie, uh, but we do not know the fact that he's he's coming up short. In the script, there's also a couple of Again, not very significant, but it kind of makes you drift away a little bit with Chris having a couple of kind of like sexual dreams, having, you know, with, with women that are not necessarily his girlfriend because he even mentions to, you know, there that he doesn't have a girlfriend or anything, but the, they kind of threw it in there. And, and I think, yeah, it would have been a little too distracting. It would have been a little too, oh, now we're dealing in dream world kind of scenario. So I'm kind of glad they didn't do that. You know, stick to the stick to the facts, if you will. Uh, so that's kind of that's kind of interesting. There's also a sequence where Chris meets up with uh, they call it the smoking man. It's a guy that's I guess he just coming off the line or something, and he's all disheveled and he looks like a mess. And he reminds him of the guy that he sees in the beginning of the film, the guy that's leaving, you know, that first line of, of soldiers that are returning as they are coming in. And I think what they try to do, again, I don't want to say supernatural, but spiritual maybe, I don't know, maybe. They try to make this connection in the script where Chris is meeting up with this guy who's, he's almost like, I don't want to say a ghost, but he he's kind of like resembling, you know, the worst of what could happen. And he's kind of meeting up with him and, you know, gives him a light for a cigarette. And I think, again, if they would have gone through with that sequence, it would have been a little too much in terms of hinting at, well, was this guy a ghost of, of what could happen to him or something like that? Or is it just his 
own feelings projected on a character. I think it was wise not to go in that direction. Keep it straight. Keep it straight. Keep it straight. Keep it realistic, you know. The final battle, the way that it is described in the script, and even the book to a certain extent, it is way, way more violent than what we get with the movie. I've listened to a number of interviews with Dale Dye talking about how he didn't want, uh, like, that, that he, he tried to talk Oliver Stone into toning down the violence, specifically uh, having to do with the village scene. Like, don't be as mean. Don't, don't, don't make the soldiers look as bad and that sort of thing. Because, again, Dale Dye politically is 180 degrees on the other side of Oliver Stone. And while he respects Stone in his filmmaking capacities, he understands that these two are not on the same wavelength politically. And you could tell by listening to some of the interviews that whenever Stone would go to his politics, which he he backs away a lot, and that's something to keep in mind, when you compare the script to the final film, he pulled away, he chopped off quite a lot of of political information uh, or point of view. But you can tell that Dale Dye is, is kind of like, yeah, I wish he wouldn't go that direction so much. But anyway, the violence that takes place during that final battle, you know, at the end, at night, it is much more graphic. Specifically, the manner in which some of these key players, these characters that we met die, you get a much more detailed explanation. And Again, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a script writer. I don't know if the point of putting it on a script is so that you can then project it to the director, which which it's himself, but uh, the people reading the script. So they get a better understanding of what he's trying to say. In other words, they might not necessarily show everything that's on the script, but so that I, at least they can get the feel of what emotional you know, reaction he's trying to get from the audience. So... Yeah, it is It is much, much more brutal per character than we see on screen. Lieutenant Wolf, who is the, he's kind of like the bad officer, the guy that they don't like, the guy that has no control over somebody like Barnes, for example. I was always confused by watching the film. I mean, the fact that he don't, you don't see him at the end, like chatting with somebody, I never really caught exactly the fact that he is one of the guys that gets shot as the onslaught is coming. He's the character that gets, I think he gets wounded and then he turns around holding his face, I could be wrong, and he's shot right there and he falls back. You could also kind of tell by his uniform, I think also, the, the particular insignia, and that's because he's covering his face so you don't see him. It makes it a little more difficult, but it does confirm the fact that he is shot when the, when the final raid happens. In the script, we also get a pretty clear description of what Barnes exactly does to Chris. Right as the, that final battle is taking place and Chris saves Barnes from getting shot from by someone else, but when Barnes turns around, it's a little difficult in the movie to tell, is he turning around and hitting him by accident, by, you know, the, 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 the excitement of the moment type of thing? Or does he turn around, recognize it's him, recognize he just saved him, and go after him anyway? Well, in the script, 
it is much more descriptive in terms of what the sequence of events are. Not only does he turn around and hit him like you see in the book, but in the book, he turns around and hits him and then grabs his shovel, the, the, the little tiny shovel, and is ready to kind of bash his face in with the shovel. And that's when you see his eyes turn red and the, 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 the bomb is dropping, whatever. But in the script, he actually gets to hit Chris in the face once or twice. And they talk about how he messes up his face, like he's broken some, he might have some broken teeth and some, you know, some facial, some really pretty rough facial injuries as a result of the first couple of shots that he gets, you know, to Chris before the, you know, the bomb is dropped. In the movie, after the bomb is dropped, they do this dramatic thing where when Chris wakes up from the night, you see everything kind of in black and white and you're, you're getting this kind of almost dreamy, weird haze to everything, which is, again, it's very cinematic, if you will. It helps the audience understand that they're waking up from whatever the hell just happened. But in the book, they don't go that way. In the book, they don't give you that sort of thing or in the script. You're just, boom, it's morning and eyes are open and all of a sudden you start to see what's happening around you. They're a little more dramatic, a little more visual, let's put it that way. And that's the only time, I think, if I really think about it, that might be the only time where you're teetering on that whole thing about, oh, it's ethereal. It's, I don't want to, again, I don't want to go into supernatural or anything like that route having visions, having uh, seen things, uh, you know, that kind of, no, no, no. But it, it, it's just a, a little thing to help the audience kind of wake up from this whole thing. And, and it also gives you that sense of time. Time has passed. Then we went from night to morning now. I don't know how many hours these guys are out, passed out. I don't know. But it, it at least helps the audience understand that. One very short mention that is there in the earlier draft of the script, and that's when Chris and Elias are talking about, you know, the war, and I think it's the scene where they're looking up at the stars that got cut down quite a bit. One of the things I think they talk about is reincarnation and how, you know, Elias would theorize that if he were to come back, he would probably come back as a deer, you know, to the world. And that is such a huge line because when you think about it, that is one of the first things that Chris sees when he wakes up after the final battle. And I think it was kind of smart to remove that line because it would have been too perfect. <laughs> it would have given you, which I've already mentioned, it would have given you that whole eh, kind of supernatural-ish tinge to it, which is things that Stone, I believe, ended up trimming away from the script. He didn't want to become too, you know, spiritual and too mystic, you know, about uh, some of the events that take place, some of the dreams, some of the possible hallucinations and, you know, all these other things beating you over the head with a particular political point of view, if you will. He very smartly trimmed all that away and left you with the bare bones of what the story he's trying to give you. But it's good to know that that connection, you know, when, when Chris does sees that deer, it's good to know that there was more meaning behind it other than Oh, look, it's morning and there's a deer that showed up after a battle. How ironic. You know, the deer even looks, I think it looks like he's got some burn marks on it or anything or stuff like that. Unless it's a just a brownish kind of different type of deer that, that would, would exist, that would live in, in, in a jungle like that. I'm not sure. But it is 
much more important when you think about it, knowing that that conversation was had previously. There is also something that I've never noticed, and that is that after Chris shoots Barnes, and he's kind of like trembling and and walking around, and, and you see help is coming and all that stuff, he apparently is holding a grenade. And it is implied, I could have swore I heard one of the interviews saying that it, there is a possibility that Chris was going to kill himself after that. That after killing Barnes, he was just so out of it that there was the possibility of him doing that. And apparently, and again, I'm going to have to watch that scene again, when the, the, the rescue people, let's say, are coming towards him, he drops the grenade off to the ground because he was kind of holding it, I think, with two hands ready to pull a pin on it. Again, it is so brief that you it's its one of those blink and you miss it type of things. There also references in the script and in one of the interviews I held from Dale, I heard from Dale Dye. As a matter of fact, his wife has a, a brief cameo that when they're pouring all those bodies into the hole after the, the battle into the crater uh, and they're, they're dropping bodies and they're dropping bodies. He mentioned something that his wife had a cameo as a body being thrown in the pit. And I'm thinking, why would they put a woman? I mean, I guess you could dress her up as a, as a VC or something. Or, But no, in the script, apparently, there is a shot of a woman nurse, I think, who is, I guess, part of that group. But again, you never saw women there at all. But they mentioned that there's a there, the body of a woman nurse is being thrown into one of those pits, too. So it's like, wow, I wonder if that ever actually made it to the film, uh, at least enough for you to realize it's that character or it's supposed to be that character again it would be jarring to put a woman in this when you haven't seen a woman up to this point and i don't even know if that is a practice that the military did in terms of having women so close to the front i mean i understand uh, medical facilities like a like a mass unit for example but in a battlefield scenario i don't know if that's the type of thing they were doing again back in the 60s now it's different obviously there was also an alternative ending. As the film ends, just like on the script and book, what the original script from the Laserdisc offers us is what they refer to as the ending B, an alternative ending, which was not shot in that manner. But obviously, you could kind of say it would be pretty easy to basically reconstruct the ending B from the material of the ending A, if you will. The biggest difference with the ending B version of the script is that as soon as Chris wakes up, he does not confront Barnes. As a matter of fact, he doesn't see Barnes at all. He kind of wakes up and stumbles from the jungle to be found by the rescue troops, let's say. There is no walking away and sitting down while holding the grenade from the previous description that I gave you. There's no grenade here. He's basically picked up and carried away. And it kind of gives you a way of not killing Barnes, of not putting that on his shoulders. But in the movie, he does. And I completely agree that it's a much better story with him doing that. It is a final ending to this terror that is there and 
could potentially just recuperate and come back again to completely devastate and terrorize other people, including other soldiers. The history of the script is also very, pretty tumultuous in terms of how much eventually will be shaved off the pages. And it is theorized that there are many reasons for all these changes, a lot of it having to do with the changing of political views and popular views of the Vietnam War by the mid-80s. I read this document online. First, I was trying to find something official, like an interview or some kind of a way of describing um, how things were done as far as the script goes, as far as the, the growth of the script. And it was very difficult to find. But what I did find was a thesis, believe it or not, from a student attending the East Amigla School of Film and Television Studies in 2010. It is insane. This guy did a whole thesis, you know, for his school uh, having to do with the political ramifications of certain movies. And he goes through a whole bunch of movies, uh, not just war movies, but amongst those selections is Platoon. And I will include a link to that because it is just fantastic. The detail and the nuance of all these different things having to do with the way Platoon looks as opposed to the way the movie started out. All these different influences. He talks about the first draft being put together in 1976. So it took, you know, almost 10 years for this first draft to evolve into what we finally saw. You also have to remember that in 1976, which the film would not, you know, was not accepted in order to be produced at that time. The American audience had a much darker view of a Vietnam film and a Vietnam vet. Some of the more popular films, if you will, that came out of that period were films like Coming Home, The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, and even Taxi Driver. But these were films that portrayed the, the, the average vet as a really messed up individual. <laughs> they weren't ready to give them any form of heroic treatment as far as films are concerned. As a matter of fact, those who tried were completely the opposite in terms of something like the Green Berets with John Wayne. Basically, what happened in this situation is they John Waned Vietnam. They turned it into a jingoistic right wing rah-rah type of message movie to put a, a right-wing spin on Vietnam. But these other films, which were much more popular and, you know, award-winning films, were the first times we started to see this. Even on television, I remember, whenever they would have a Vietnam vet, it would not be really painted in any sort of good light. In the 70s, you would have him as a killer or a a uh, criminal who can't handle, you know, uh, regular city, suburban life kind of scenario. Uh, very one-dimensional. Obviously, with the constraints of television, you don't even have time to examine that particular person and to kind of work out the character. But on certain films, like I mentioned before, they go deep in them. Granted, you take a movie like The Deer Hunter, you know, that's a heavy, heavy 
PTSD and psychological trauma of the individuals. Apocalypse Now is a it's more and more like a surrealistic dream nightmare of Vietnam. Taxi Driver, it's practically a horror film in terms of how nuts your lead character is. But as the 80s continued, and there were certain events that kind of started to change people's minds, or at least people's perception in the media, in film and television, not necessarily the individual vets here we're talking about, but we're talking about the perception or the acceptance. I'm talking about, I think it was approximately 1982 when the Vietnam Vet Memorial was unveiled in Washington where all of a sudden attention started to be paid towards Vietnam vets. And there was a slight change in the way that some of these films were being portrayed. So now you have uh, films like First Blood, which, while it's not a serious examination, a, a dramatically serious examination, now you're dealing with a little more of a the vet being the good guy. He's still messed up and having issues and not being able to assimilate with society, but he is the hero of the story in a action-y kind of way, you know, in a, in a Sylvester Stallone kind of way. Let's turn the, the vet into an action hero, basically. Even though First Blood is the tamest of all of them and probably the most dramatic of all of them, of all of the uh, the Rambo films. The movie The Big Chill dealt seriously with a Vietnam vet, one of the different characters in the film. And you can also say that a movie like Platoon opened up the doors to the more dramatic, serious Vietnam films of the time. Films like Hamburger Hill, Gardens of Stone, and Hanoi Hilton. As I mentioned before, a lot of the very direct liberal messages of Oliver Stone's writing were eventually removed by him to not beat people over the head with the message and concentrate more on the individual. Let the audience experience what they're experiencing without necessarily being told what the person is thinking. You kind of have to feel what he's thinking without being told what he's thinking. And there were certain lines that were cut that you kind of find, again, in the original script. For example, even Elias, when they're having that that heart-to-heart -heart conversation about not thinking that the war is going to be won, Elias even mentions at one point that Chris shouldn't let politicians sell you another war, assuming, obviously, that he survives this war. So part of that message that we get at the end of the film with the narration, the closing narration, is coming from sections where this conversation has already been had and brought up as part of the narrative with another character. You also get some conservative points of view in the script as part of the narration that was also removed, this time around having to do with vets when they come back home not being respected, which is kind of part of, again that background of some what of these some of these soldiers are experiencing and then they instead choose to return to to combat rather than going back home because of how people are feeling about them and as the script grows the character of Elias starts to lose some of his i guess you could call it kind of like a hippie edge a more liberal edge you will and they 
turn him more into kind of like a spiritual individual. Again, going with that initial, you know, Native American type of target as the type of character he should be, he would be more spiritual, you know, with nature than specifically liberal hippie kind, you know, that frame of mind. The script, especially the earlier script, points out more about kind of like the psychology of of Barnes, him being a very hyper-mechanical individual, meaning that everything is about the concept of a machine and how his platoon, and I mentioned this earlier, is a machine that cannot break down. Because if you break down his machine, if you break down his men, if you mess up with his order, you're messing up not only with his men... And his war. Again, a very strict my way or the highway kind of way of thinking. He even mentions at one point in the earlier version of the script how he can't find a war with a hand tied behind his back. Which is a quote from, I think, later on in history. I think, uh, according to the, the thesis, it was, I think, Reagan mentioned that, having uh, referring to LBJ, how he was trying to fight a war with a hand tied behind his back. So they were able to kind of sneak that into the script, even though it was obviously out of, it, out of place, you know, out of time. The character of Chris also has to show, and he does kind of show that a little bit, even though it might not seen that way that at first he is torn and he talks about being torn between two fathers the barnes and the elias side of the yin and the yang he talks about how he wants to do his part you know like grandpa did in world war one and how dad did in world war two and now he's here to do his part because he wants to you know live up to their, I guess, expectations. But that's also part of the thing that is kind of driving him and is conflicting him, is that he does not like the expectations or the life that came out of the 1950s into where he is now in the mid-60s. All these expectations that are expected of him, yeah, marry, go to school, have a wife, have children, start working, you know, boom, boom, boom. These expectations, he tries to kind of blow it all up by coming to this war, by volunteering for this war, as opposed to much more of his other soldiers that are drafted. They're there because they had no choice. And he mentions in the script itself, you hear him talking about how, why should the poor kids be the only ones out there? I want to come here and see what it's like so I know for myself, rather than being able to kind of skirt around the the, the, the rules and the loopholes of not having to go. So even from the beginning, there's a, there's a yin and a yang with the character of, of Chris Taylor. He is attracted to both Barnes and Elias. He, he likes the, the methodical, super cold functional soldier that Barnes is, but he also likes the humanity and the closeness and empathy of somebody like Elias. One of the things they mentioned also is that the topic of racism exists in the movie. Not super explicit, but there are a lot of soldiers, a lot of the black soldiers who do mention about how it's all about race, and that's the only reason they're there, and the reason they're in the bottom of the barrel is because of race. And it's really interesting if you think about it, because you have the character of Junior, who is black, and however, he is part of the Barnes circle, as opposed to the other, and the majority of the other 
black soldiers who are part of the Elias circle, and they're hanging out in their own specific places. You have the you know the potheads on one side and the you know the alcohol swigglers on the other side. I think he called them the juicers and the. I forget exactly what they call the other each other, but there was definitely a line. And even with a character like Junior, they make a note that he is part of that group, but if you notice, he's not playing poker with the rest of them. So it's kind of like he's good enough to be included so it's good for their numbers, but he is not really, really introduced or, or welcomed into the inner circle of that group. So he's kind of there on the periphery. He's there chatting with Bunny. And and even Bunny, at a certain point later on, he is getting tighter and tighter with Barnes. But Junior is never. He's there, but he's not really 100% there. As I mentioned before, it almost seems as if Junior is there just because he does not get along with the other group that they welcome him just to kind of increase their numbers. It's kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that kind of theory. There was also a section that I didn't I didn't completely, it's not that I understood it, but it, it didn't exactly fit in well, is that Lieutenant Wolf, there's a scene where he, you know, again, he's visiting the, the Barnes group um, who are playing poker, and, and um, one of the soldiers there makes a crack about him being Jewish, and he doesn't really take it too well. And he kind of walks away after that's over, because they basically insulted him. Well, in this script, I believe it is basically confirmed he is Jewish, and that is why he is so offended by that crack, uh, which is like, a, it's a, when you hear it, you're like, well, why are they even saying this? What, wh- Where'd that come from? Like, why would you say that to somebody, especially if they know it's true? I mean, again, it's, it's part of this... Uh, mentality of just saying the worst possible things that you could say to somebody which obviously doesn't help his character because he is kind of like a weak character he he seems to have his heart in the right place but he's completely out of his element and he's completely overtaken by Barnes Barnes just rolls over him every single time uh, to the point where he is so over his head and in trouble in terms of not being able to keep Barnes under control that he even has to side with Barnes when all of these atrocities are taking place he's there to, he's defending him because he knows that if he doesn't defend them he is eventually going to get caught you know uh, as somebody who did not watch and take care of his troops and keep an eye on Barnes. So he is kind of put in a situation where he is just way, way, way into deep. As I mentioned before, uh, a couple of other films that you could say were, that followed Platoon that, again, also took this subject a little more serious and a little more in in a dramatic uh, manner. Films like Casualties of War, uh, Full Metal Jacket, which, again, with Full Metal Jacket, we're, we're kind of bouncing a little bit into the surreal world. Stanley Kubrick, I would kind of put it in the in the Apocalypse Now kind of category. Good Morning Vietnam, that's the Robin Williams film. Born on the 4th of July, here's the second of what, what's considered to be the trilogy, the, the uh, Oliver Stone Vietnam trilogy. This one having to do more with what happens to a soldier once he returns home. And all of those things that we were kind of hinting at very slightly about the, the rough time that they're having as they're coming back home and assimilating back to regular life. Uh, we get to see this. And this uh, in this particular case, they, they are way, way more clear about how you're dealing with 
a person that was completely pro-war and couldn't wait to get on it and started and do all these things, all these images in his head of what war was like, and then the reality of it, and then the post-war period of being at home and how difficult it was, you know, with his uh, injuries and disability. But you also got around that time movies like Rambo 2, which, again, I it's very difficult because... A movie like Rambo 2, I would defend the hell out of it because I know exactly what it is. It is an action vehicle that is supposed to basically follow up First Blood. It's just that it turns it into a more super action, almost superhero type of, you know, antics for a character. And I love that. But I also have to understand it is not realism in terms of how a movie like Platoon is super straight, realistic, dramatic. Rambo is almost a video game, you know, what you're dealing with. And you also have movies that could be considered not just action, but bordering on B-movies, exploitation type of stuff, like Missing in Action 1, Missing in Action 2, all those Chuck Norris films. Again, you're going way over the top with the ridiculousness. The budgets are very low. The action is very somewhat cheesy at times. It is the poor man's Rambo, in a way. <laughs> and, and and you know, it's, it's just, you're always going to get this. Once a genre is defined and it becomes successful for one or two or three films or whatever, you are going to get... Not just the copycats, but you are going to get the bad, bad, you know, over-the-top kind of versions of it that are just... I mean, they make money, and I'm sure there's probably worse films than that. I'm sure for every missing in action, you're going to have ten other completely ridiculous versions of, of something set in Vietnam. But, like I said before, this is a great uh, little thesis that I, I, I would definitely recommend reading it at least like i said there's other movies that he talks about but this particular one and again the guy's name uh i didn't mention before his name is oliver grunner and it's a thesis for his phd university of east angela one last book i would like to mention because as i was researching this and and trying to look for more information and obviously information that comes straight from the horse's mouth that being oliver stone he put out a book a while back called Chasing the Light, and it pretty much chronicles his filmmaking experiences up until probably, I think it's like the late 80s or early 90s. So in there, you have Platoon. I, I only read so far the, the chapter about Platoon. And one of the stories that really stuck out is that the behind-the-scenes craziness that was going on between... The infighting between, I think it was like one of the producers and one of the set designers or something like that, that completely almost derailed the entire film. The fights, even Stone himself, the fights that he was getting into with some of the crew members, you know, they were shooting in the Philippines, I believe. So it, it was pretty nutty when you when you read about all these things uh, but but you do get a lot of those stories of of the actors being trained and how he was coming off of Salvador and he thought that he had 
completely bombed at Salvador and, and things were looking bad and this was going to be like his last shot. If I don't make Platoon work, I am done with this business, basically. And little by little, at the last minute, Salvador starting to pick up some traction. So that kind of fueled his, uh, his, 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 not only his standing, but his, um, his own self-confidence uh, to be able to just kind of keep going uh, with the film. And I, again, I would definitely recommend that book also, Chasing the Light. So overall, you know, this is a, a really good exploration of how a script is so much more different. And it wasn't just a case because originally I'm like, well, you know what, let's just compare the book with the movie like we've done before many times. But here it was just that the book wasn't enough. The book didn't give me those answers that I wanted. I had to go take it a, a step further and really dive into the script. And I'm I'm really glad, again, that the Laserdisc version, out of all things in the world, the Laserdisc version is what provided me with a lot of the facts of the development of the script. And I was glad also to be able to find these extra books like Chasing the Light and this thesis uh, that does such a great job in examining all the factors that went into how the script got trimmed a little bit at a time until what we ended up with the final product. And I do remember uh, reading somewhere saying that, you know, Stone could have put out the film the way he originally wrote it, but it would have been too preachy, too in your face. So by stripping away all of the preachiness, people are able to take that message without being told. And that is part of how and why the film appealed to a wider audience. It wasn't just something for liberal film fans. Everybody went to see it. Most Vietnam vets had a good reaction to it in terms of how they were able to be portrayed and how some of their feelings were put there on the screen and being able to be to be expressed in a certain manner. And I think part of the trick was, like I said, don't preach too much. Show them. Show them the events. Show them the situations. Tell a particular story. This is a particular story. Not all of these things happen to him. Obviously, not a lot of the things that are in this script, in the story, did happen to him. He knew people like these. He knew combinations of people like these. He might have even been in situations like that. But by putting them all together into one film, that's how he was able to put it out there. And it reached everybody for the first time in such a wide uh, manner that not only ended up with it being a successful, you know, box office kind of film, but he won a Best Director Academy Award. The film also won Best Picture, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. So they pretty much cleaned house. Many of the actors were nominated. Berenger, William Dafoe, you know, they were nominated for Oscars. Screenplay, he was also a Stone nominated for an Oscar. And Best Cinematographer was also nominated. But they did a great job in, in how many uh, awards they were able to pick up. So this is the one that basically put him on the map. Salvador was a little bit of a stepping stone. It didn't receive the huge attention or, or praise or money money that everybody thought they would but with platoon this is what made his career all right i hope everyone enjoyed today's show we took a really close look or as close as possible look at the development of the script uh for the movie platoon 
all the different things that were introduced and removed and some of the reasons why they could have been done that way or they were done that way and the overall effect and why the movie worked, you know, when it worked, whereby if the movie would have been made, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years earlier, it would not have worked. But basically, you know, you have the perfect storm of certain political things going on at the time and people being ready for that kind of a story and being given that kind of a story, you know, through the perfect vehicle. I have plenty of resources you guys can look at if you really like that film. Not only the movie tie-in adaptation, the script, the book by Oliver Stone. There's tons of things on YouTube. I'm going to include the links to even this other documentary I just watched after I was all set and done. And it's basically a 30th anniversary kind of reunion of all of the actors on how their training went and how their experience was and how it changed their lives. And it, it was like this bonus documentary that I got to watch at the end, which it was great. Now, consider this a bonus for you hardcore listeners, all six of you. Once again, I'm putting this thing to bed. I'm slapping on the final end music, final, you know, end trailer, end cue, all that, all those end pieces. And I'm looking down my YouTube list here of, because, you know, I'm trying to find, you know, the the right uh, way to close the show and everything like I always do. And all of a sudden I see something that says platoon deleted scenes. And I'm like, oh man, how'd I miss this? Man, did I find a treasure trove of information in a way. What you got here is a whole bunch of deleted scenes that were shot. Obviously, that's what it's a scene. And some of them are just extensions or alternates. But here's what you have in in chronological order. The first one is labeled Platoon, Chris's first time. This is the scene where they're emptying out the latrines. And what's interesting in this scene is that instead of it transitioning directly to when they go to hang out, you know, at the club, you know, the where these guys are hanging out and smoking... They give Chris a hit of pot right there on the spot, and they're continuing the conversation that they're having. And what's happening is that uh, Chris is still bothered by what happened to him. You know, he got wounded at that first battle, and they're telling him, just forget it. You got to just keep going because you can't dwell on that sort of thing. And he's, you know, the the pot kind of starts to take effect on him after a while. And it's interesting, they took this scene out, if you think about it, because it then moves the whole introduction of him smoking pot for the first time to once he gets into that club area, into that clubhouse area. Very interesting. The conversation about him not feeling guilty, that's a good one. I like that conversation. And yeah, I could, I would have kept it, but It is so tied to the smoking pot scene that I guess they had to sacrifice that piece in order for the other piece, you know, to work out better in the second scene. The second scene is called Love and Hate. And this is, again, another major scene because you have a whole bunch of characters that are talking about how nasty Barnes is. And they're talking about... A little bit of Barnes's background, the stuff that I told you guys about earlier, about where he came from, and then a little bit of the background of Elias. So you're getting little tidbits of those two conversations from the earlier script. They were actually shot, which is fantastic. What's also really, really 
interesting is that a lot of the lines are coming from Lerner, which is Johnny Depp's character. So basically, this would have been his big scene in the movie. This is actual lines, like constant lines. They were all chopped out. I'm sure he was completely disappointed because uh, he actually you actually get to see him and you, you hear him talking and acting, you know, as opposed to what we end up with, which is little, little tiny, you know, bits and pieces. Again, this also includes Ra explaining the love and hate tattoos on his uh, on his hands, which is something that they really don't go into too much in the movie. In the book, obviously, and in the script, you get this conversation. You get a little bit of that background when all these soldiers are talking together. Next up, you have a dream sequence. I remember I talked about certain dream sequences. This is a completely different one that I never realized. I don't even remember. I don't even know if I saw it on the script, which is weird. It's a sequence where you see all these soldiers, and then the way they shoot it is they're all looking at you from far away with a Buddha uh, statue behind them and little by little you cut and some disappear you cut and some disappear until there's almost none of them left and i think it was going to be i imagine it would probably be kind of like a dissolved sequence where soldiers are just disappearing disappearing and chris is dreaming of this basically how people are dying how his crew members his his squad mates are all disappearing as they die and then you get a you get a shot of him kind of like waking up so I think that's what was supposed to be with this. Then you get a scene called No Regrets. And this is a, a slight extension on the conversation that Chris and Elias uh, were having when they're looking at the stars. And it's kind of like a prophetic almost conversation where, you know, they talk about how, like, if a guy is going to die, does he know ahead of time that he's going to die? And they kind of have a little back and forth exchange about that. And, and it's a little spiritual, if you will. And Elias mentions a little bit about him being Indian or Native American. But it's, it's, a, it's an extension in that already existing scene. Next up, you have a scene called When I Get Home. And this is a, a couple of, of conversations that are happening between, I think it's Harold and King. I think those are the two characters. And, and we saw a little bit of this in the movie. There's a scene where they're all, it's raining like crazy and they're all in water. They're kind of walking through uh, uh, some kind of lake or something. And uh, there's like leeches floating around. And it's a conversation between two of these soldiers. They're talking about what they're going to do when they get home and how one guy says he wants to be assigned to laundry. And they goes, oh, that's only for the white boys and blah, blah, blah. And they're never going to get it because these guys are black. And that is one of those sequences where you do get a little bit of that racial rift displayed on screen, which, you know, we did see a little more of it in the script and the book. And then you got another conversation about what's he going to do. Like, what are the first things you're going to do when you get home? I'm going to eat this. I'm going to go with my girl and this and that. You know, it's one of those kind of what are you going to do when you get home conversations. That leads to them getting out of that area and Johnny Depp's character, Lerner, taking point and being told, okay, head in that direction, which I think is, is what leads to the ambush that these guys walk into right after that. And again... It kind of goes back to that whole thing I was telling you about uh, with um, Forrest Whitaker's character, which in this scene, you're, you know, he's telling you all about the things he's going to do. And then uh, a minute later, you're going to see him get shot and wounded and you don't know the fate of him. Next up, you have Look for a Target. This is just a quick couple of shots of Barnes screaming at his squad as they're taking fire. It's kind of like an extension of the, 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 the shots you get of him as everybody's taking uh, shelter 
uh, as they're being shot at, he's the only one that's like kind of walking and screaming at everyone and telling them what to do. It's an extension of that, basically. A couple of more lines, a couple of more of his, holy crap, this guy doesn't even care that bullets are flying around and he's just barking out orders and screaming. Next up, you have Rescue and Learner. Again, uh, different angles on uh, Chris trying to pull Lerner into safety and then finally grabbing him, putting him over his shoulder and walking him away. Next, you have Life of the Party. This is a scene between, I think it's King and Taylor. Uh, and I think it's right before the big battle at the end. And, and King telling him that he's got to control his pot intake because, you know, you got to be sharp, even though they're both smoking pot at the time. And... They're kind of, he's kind of telling him how green he was and how, you know, crazy seasoned he is now. You know, his head is on the game, more or less. And it ends with him kind of starting to sing uh, that same song from uh, the, um, the, the, when they were in the, uh, in the clubhouse. Then you have this new guy. This is also an extension of Kim going home. And, there's just a little extra line that's thrown in there about how they're going to, you know, send me a postcard and I'll write to you and, hey, I'll send you a tape. I heard about this new guy called Jimi Hendrix. That's great. And it's like, yeah, okay, see you later. It, again, a little tiny little tidbit that was trimmed out. Next scene is called Later. This is a really strange scene. And I'm, I think I'm learning something new about it. I told you about a scene where, again, right before the big battle, as some guys are getting ready to fight, some guys, I think, are heading on their way out. And a guy asks Chris for a light, and he looks completely disheveled, like he's been beat to crap, you know, from a previous battle or something. And I mentioned that he does kind of remind me, or reminds the audience, of the guy he sees in the beginning of the movie, who is walking, as he's coming off the plane, he sees, like, a whole bunch of guys leaving in rough shape, and then the last guy, he almost looks like a ghost, how messed up and old he looks and and like weather beaten and war beaten here he gives this guy a light the guy has a, a towel over his head and the guy takes a whiff of the cigarette looks up and then looks at chris and and camera angle wise you're looking at everybody's looking at the camera and when you get a shot of the guy who looks really messed up in terms of dirty and slightly scarred up and his nose is really big and his teeth are all kind of crooked all over the place. He looks at Chris and goes later, but like a very menacing looking growl at him. And I'm pretty sure that's Elias. That's William Defoe playing that character. Again, this throws everything into that kind of supernatural edge that I was telling you guys about before. So this is really, really weird. And I'm glad they took it out because it would have been like, whoa, this is really strange. Barnes Lives. Wow, this is a really interesting one too. I mentioned before that at the end of the film, there was a script version where he does not shoot Barnes. He just kind of wakes up and they rescue him. There is no Barnes. You don't see Barnes. So you have no clue what happened to Barnes. You assume he's dead. But there is a version where he does not shoot him. When Barnes says, get me a medic, and then Chris is kind of looking at him, ready to shoot him, and he tells him, do it, he doesn't do it. He kind of smirks at him, turns around and walks away, and Barnes is trying to egg him on to kill him. And he turns around again. He walks away towards the, the rescue area, let's say, and Barnes is like, come on, you gutless bastard. So... 
Yeah, that's another interesting possible ending they could have gone with, which I'm glad they didn't because it is more impactful uh, the way the film ends in the uh, in the final cut. So there you have it, another <laughs> unusual last minute discovery for you guys to enjoy. But again, if this is a movie that resonates with you and a movie that affects you and a movie that kind of becomes one of the benchmarks you know for the subject of war movies specifically in this case vietnam this is a must-see movie and there is plenty of resources out there if you want to explore deeper and further into it so on behalf of everyone here thanks for listening and we'll see you soon here at geek fest rants bye-bye everybody think now, looking back, we did not fight the enemy, we fought ourselves, and the enemy was in us. The war is over for me now, but it will always be there, the rest of my days, as I'm sure Elias will be, fighting with Barnes for what Ra called possession of my soul. There are times since I felt like a child born of those two fathers. But be that as it may, those of us who did make it have an obligation to build again, to teach to others what we know, and to try with what's left of our lives to find a goodness and meaning to this life. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2021. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>